Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. How rich a treasure we possess in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have an inheritance that's incorruptible and that's more than we could ever ask for or even hope for and it's guaranteed for us. And day by day and week by week, we get so wrapped up about the nickels and dimes and setbacks and sufferings of this life that one day out of seven, we have to gather together and focus on how rich a treasure we possess. That's what Isaiah 61 is about. Isaiah 61 is a, is a beautiful unfolding of the treasure that we possess in heaven. And as we open God's word, let's pray and ask God to open our hearts. Even now, Lord God, even now, grant us faith. Grant us eyes to see this inheritance that we possess. Grant us faith to not doubt that it is ours in Christ Jesus. Show us who we are by your word. And grant us faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll be in Isaiah 61. I'll read just the first four verses. Isaiah 61 says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Isaiah, like all of the Old Testament prophets, is looking way out into the future at the coming of Jesus and at the second coming of Jesus and at all of the promises that God will fulfill to his people Israel and to his new covenant people, the church. And like all the Old Testament prophets, he's looking at, so to speak, a mountain range in the distance and he sees one mountain and then another one behind it and he speaks about both of those mountains. He may not even know how far between each other those two mountains are, the coming of Christ in our salvation and the second coming of Christ in the culmination of all things when he returns again. I'd ask you to glance again at verses one and two before turning to Luke chapter four where this is quoted. So if you look at verses one and two, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God and comforting those who mourn. With that in your mind, I'd ask you to turn ahead to Luke chapter four. Jesus is gonna quote this at the very beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter four. And I asked you to glance at it one more time because it's like that, it's like that uh, highlights magazine with the two pictures that you look at in the pediatrician's office. And there's a picture on one side 
And then the same picture on the other side, but like seven or eight things are left out of it or changed. And you're supposed to recognize what changed. See if you can recognize what changes when Jesus reads this in Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four, verse 14. The beginning of Jesus' ministry. Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what was left out of the picture? Jesus quit reading in the middle of the sentence. He quit reading when it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. That's the part that's left out in this second picture. Why would Jesus stop mid-sentence and, and just leave out the and and the other clause about the vengeance of God? Why would he do that? Because this, which he's about to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, that prophecy was fulfilled in his first coming. That's the first mountain that Isaiah saw. The and which follows is the second coming of Jesus, which is the mountain behind that. Here Jesus expresses his understanding of his own salvation ministry. It's like the, it's like the verse that we most... John 3.16, I'm not complaining about how popular John 3.16 is, but it kind of annoys me that we get so excited about John 3.16 that we leave out John 3.17, which is like just as good as John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3.17 is an amazing verse. It says that God, though he will send the son into the world to judge the world, God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. He sent the Son to save the world. This foregrounds God's mercy, God's grace, the great blessing of salvation, though it does not annihilate or delete 
the doctrine of God's justice, vengeance, and wrath at the second coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ will fulfill all of the prophecy of Isaiah 61, just not all at the same time. In his first coming, he inaugurated the year of the Lord's favor. In his second coming, tribulation, second coming of Christ, he will inaugurate the day of God's vengeance. Today, the door of salvation is wide open. That door will be shut one day by the sun. There's a gap in time between his first coming and his second coming, and that gap in time is the, the time where, where, where we all live. That's our time. They call it the church age it's the time between his two advents. We don't know how long we have, but we know that this is the age that we live in. And so I am unapologetically, utterly and completely invested in doing what we did this morning, welcoming new members into the church. This is the church age. This is the time for making and training disciples who will make and train disciples and to build up a church that carries out that gospel covenant that we went through in the service together. That's why we're here. We don't know how long this age will last, but we know what we're supposed to be doing in this age. It's what we're doing this morning. That's the first picture to see in Isaiah 61 is the big picture of the first coming and the second coming. The second picture I want you to see in Isaiah 61 is a picture of a spirit-filled savior. This is a fascinating and fruitful topic. What does it mean that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit? So you see verse one of Isaiah 61. Jesus is speaking and he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. What does that mean? We're meant to turn back in Isaiah from 61. Turn back real quick to Isaiah 42, verses one through four. This is the son of God again speaking about being filled with the spirit of God. Or this is God the father explaining how he fills the son with the spirit. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth Justice. He will not faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. It's the fullness of the spirit that enables the servant of God, the son of God, to not grow discouraged and to fulfill his ministry. Turn back a little more to Isaiah 11. Another promise that the servant of God will be filled with the spirit of God. Isaiah 11 verse 1. 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. See verse two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. We see again there the mountain peaks of the second coming when he strikes the wicked, his first coming when he speaks a gentle word of salvation, and it's all because of the fullness of the Spirit in his life. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about the the anointing of the Spirit or being the, the Spirit being set upon someone. For instance, in uh, Genesis 41, when Joseph is supposed to, to lead everything in Egypt, Genesis 41, verse 38 says that the Spirit filled or anointed Joseph so that he could lead in Egypt. There's another verse that's kind of obscure but kind of beautiful in Exodus 31 about a guy named Bezalel. And Bezalel is the the architect or the artist that puts together the tabernacle. And it says in Exodus 31 verses 2 and 3 that the spirit of the Lord will fill or anoint Bezalel to enable him to do his construction and to do his art. So go from the smaller to the greater. Just as Joseph was filled with the spirit to rule in Egypt, so the greater Joseph has been filled with the spirit to rule all of the nations. Just as this craftsman, Bezalel was filled with the Spirit to put together the tabernacle. Go from the smaller to the greater. The great and final architect of our faith and of the church is so filled with the Spirit that Jesus, in the fullness of the Spirit, puts together the living stones of his church. Conversion by conversion, baptism by baptism, day by day, ABF by ABF. It's a fascinating and fruitful topic to think about. Jesus in his humanity was filled with the Spirit like we are. To get this right, we have to wade into the deep end of the theology pool, but that's good. We love theology. God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, but not three gods. God is one. The three persons always work together. The three persons of the Trinity always work together. We talk about one's part or one's role, but sometimes we we need to be a little more careful than that. They always work together. The $20 theology word for that is inseparable operations. You can't pull apart what Jesus does totally from what the Spirit does and from what God does. Inseparable operations. The three persons of the Trinity always work together in creation and in redemption. God is one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has this pivotal role in the work of redemption. Though the work is one, he has this particular role as the Son of God, where he comes as incarnate, as the second Adam from above in our human nature, yet without sin. And this involves Jesus taking on, right, a human nature in his incarnation. Did Jesus cease to be God? No, 
The second person of the Trinity did not cease to be God during his incarnation. But he did in his incarnation, though he didn't cease to be God, he did take on a real humanity and he did experience the non-sinful limitations of humanity. So in the incarnation, he emptied himself. It says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his deity, but in taking on a human nature and the weakness thereof, the, the non-sinful weakness thereof, he did somehow limit his use of his divine prerogatives and of his divine attributes. He emptied himself not of his deity, but of the use of his divine prerogatives. And so as a man, he was reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he did. We see this throughout the Gospels. Matthew 12, it says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he cast out the demons. Matthew 4, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that he endures the temptation of Satan. And similar references in Acts, when the apostles look back on his ministry, that's how they describe it. In all of his ministry, the actions of the Son of God in obedience to the Father were carried out by the power of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in him. Now, now, you are called to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. The, uh, that church covenant, it strikes me every time I read that church covenant, how, how, how that church covenant expects every one of us to be able to forgive and be reconciled to every other one of us. How could we possibly do that unless we're filled with the Spirit? I'm gonna stay mad at you if I'm filled with me. It's only when I'm filled with the Spirit that I have love, mercy, grace, long-suffering, and forgiveness. We need the fullness of the Spirit. We will never be able to carry out our church covenant without it. And did you know that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, he even shows us the way in that. He sets the example for us of what it means to live a spirit-filled life. Jesus knows. I, 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 I dare say I, I will never meet with a weak, broken-hearted church member and not be able to say to them, Jesus knows. Jesus knows knows what it's like to submit to the will of another. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to delight in being a servant. He lived life in our place, filled with the Spirit. What, a, what an amazing Savior we have. That second, we see this marvelous picture of the Spirit-filled Savior. As we go on in Isaiah 61, the third little picture we see is a personal picture of a life made beautiful. Beauty for ashes. You see it in verses 3 and 4. To grant those who mourn in Zion and give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Instead of ash on the forehead, this beautiful bejeweled, uh, you know, thing on the head, this headdress. A garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. They'll be called oaks of righteousness instead of a little tumbleweed, an oak of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that they may be glorified. Building up the ancient ruins and, and bringing a blessing to many generations. So these are, I think there are seven 
infinitives here. Some of them have an and attached to them. So there's like eight or nine or 10 blessings listed here. And as you, church, as you look at these contrasts, as you look at the contrasts in verse three and four, church, I don't want you to just look at them. I want you to feel them because if you've been converted, they are yours. They are yours. They are describing what's happened in your case. God took away mourning and ashes and poverty. And God gave you his very righteousness, his very blessings, his very beauty. Instead of mourning and death, verse three, instead of mourning and death, you now have the oil of gladness. Instead of, verse three, a faint spirit where you just shudder and run away from everything, you now have the loud praise from the heart, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. What if the opposite of a fainting, fearful spirit isn't just the English word courage? What if it's praise? He's planted you so that he will glorify himself in your life. Isn't it touching what it says in verse one? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus sees the brokenhearted whose hearts, they're stuck apart. They're not put back together, bound up. And Jesus sees that and he says, no one is gonna put that heart back together. I am going to come down there and do it. I'm gonna bind up that broken heart. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does when he saves us. Church, don't you think we forget how blessed we are to have such a savior? Don't you think we complain a little too much and we praise a little too little? Every Sunday morning is meant to be a remembrance and a re-celebration of the gospel. Every Sunday morning is meant to recalibrate us back to the blessings that are ours in Christ. That's why we sing. That's why we welcome new members. That's why we baptize. That's why we have communion. That's why we have preaching. Because we forget it. Don't you think we forget it? And we take it for granted. I, 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 the Lord, I guess, you know, just sort of circumstantially and happily, he gave me a, he gave me a great illustration of this, of our ability to forget and take things for granted this week. When I was reading the greatest comic strip of all time. You know what the greatest comic strip of all time is? I don't know if it's in our church covenant, but you probably shouldn't be a member here if you don't, if you don't know. The, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the greatest comic strip of all time is Calvin and Hobbes. And uh, they're, they open presents or something like that in this, in this one little comic strip. And Calvin says, getting is better than having. When you get something, it's new and you're excited. But when you have something, you get bored and you take it for granted. And then Hobbes responds in the last box, but everything that you get turns into something that you have. The, 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 the sadness 
of our inevitable just turning things we get and are excited about into things that we merely have. Don't you think Isaiah 61 is pleading with us not to let Jesus be something you have, you take for granted? Don't let Jesus fade. Don't let the beauty that Jesus shared with you become routine. Don't let the ashes that Jesus wiped off your face be forgotten. Praise him for it. How, how do I make sure that Jesus isn't just something I have, but he's something I get and I'm excited about? Well, let's try to answer that from this very text. It says, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captive. What Jesus does is he brings good news. That's a preaching word. And he proclaims. That's a preaching word. So one way that you make sure that you remember and recelebrate what the gospel is, is you put yourself under the proclamation and the preaching of God's word. I'm not, I'm not just saying this because I like preaching. I'm saying this because it's what the text says. And more than that, I, I really want to challenge you to look at the text and answer me, who is it that benefits from this God-ordained means of, of staying hot for Jesus. It's sitting under the proclamation of the word, experiencing the preaching of the word. But answer from the text, who is it that benefits from the preaching? Upon whom will the proclamation fall with great beauty and great blessing? Look at it. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, those who are bound in prison, those who have mourning, and those who have a faint spirit that needs to be revived. Preaching never helps people who have it all together. It never has and it never will. Preaching never helps proud people. Preaching helps the humble, the poor, and the broken. If you think that you were pretty well off and Jesus just had to top off the last bit. I don't know why you would sing his praises. But if you know how needy you are, how poor you are, then you'll sing from, from the bottom of your guts. We welcome new members into Racine Bible. I have never welcomed a new member who in their membership interview said to me, I'm really glad everybody in the church needs the gospel. I didn't really need it that much because I didn't sin that much. I've never had that interview. And if I did, the interview would end. And, and you know, I'd say, let's, let's, uh, let's work on some things before you become a member. The only way to become a member of the church is to say, my sin brought upon me my own death. And I had nothing. And Jesus took it all. And he gave me everything that I needed. This is the reality of the gospel and it's what we must remember. Don't let the gospel just be something that you have. Let it be something that you're just giddy that you got to get from Jesus. Fourth, we see a picture of the future in verses five through nine. 
He says, strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners will be your plowmen and your vine dressers. You shall be called the priests of the Lord. They'll speak as the ministers of our God. You'll eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you'll boast. Instead of your shame, there'll be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they'll rejoice. Therefore in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall see everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offering of the Lord, an offering the Lord has blessed. This is a picture of the future. It's a picture literally of Israel returning to her promised land. And then like those mountain peaks, it extends past that into a picture of what, 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 what kind of a world God will recreate for all of the redeemed. And just like so often happens in Old Testament prophecy, I would see this as a, there was a first fulfillment actually during the Old Testament. Then there's a, a fulfillment in the first coming of Christ and there'll be a full fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. The first fulfillment in the Old Testament itself was when Cyrus said to the Israelites, your captivity is over and you can return to Jerusalem. There's a near historic fulfillment. Then there's the, the first fulfillment when Jesus came to proclaim the good news of the gospel in his first coming. And there'll be a final fulfillment. So the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, initial fulfillment, historic fulfillment. The building of the church today is, is a, a partial first fulfillment. And then finally, when he returns. I'm struck too by verse eight. He uses new covenant language. I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. And notice that God, our God, who makes everlasting covenants, notice church, he loves justice and he hates wrong. Dear believer, if you have struggled lately to trust God, I want to tell you from the word of God, God is worthy of your trust because God hates wickedness and God loves righteousness. And beleaguered Believer, you are impoverishing yourself if you doubt God. He hates sin and evil and wickedness, and you can trust him with your life. We have a picture of the future. And then fifth, we have a picture of the beautiful garments of salvation. This is in a chapter that just gets better and better. This is just over the top. You see what he says in verse 10? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, 
as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is a picture of wedding garments. The groom first, he decks himself with a beautiful headdress, and the bride adorns herself with jewels. I believe that this was in the apostle's mind in Ephesians 5 when he said, when he wrote about marriage and he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And he says, the mystery is profound, but I am saying that this refers to Christ and the church. We need that passage to help us practically with our marriages. This morning's sermon isn't really about that. It's not about the shadow and the earthly. This morning's sermon is really about the fullness and the heavenly. Because I think the apostle Paul had this in mind, had Isaiah 61 in mind when he wrote Ephesians 5. I also think that the apostle John had it in mind when he was trying to describe what he saw in Revelation 19. And he says this, Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to them, these are the true words of God. This is the picture of the fullness of our salvation. Isaiah 61 is about the joy that our groom, Jesus, has in seeing us and welcoming us into his arms. And Isaiah 61 is about the joy that we have of seeing our Jesus and running to him and embracing him and being his forever. The illustration is an illustration that it is, it's touching to me that, man, even in our crazy post-Christian, godless, egalitarian, post-modern age, even still, people dress up for weddings. Everybody does. Everybody does. Here in America, in Ethiopia, in Korea, everywhere. Why is that? The illustration of dressing carefully and making yourself as beautiful as you can be is, is not just for pictures. It's because on such a special occasion, you want the radiant way that you look to tell everybody how happy you are that this is happening. 
that, 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 that you are being joined to your lifelong beloved. The way you comport yourself in your robes, in your dress, is meant to match the joy that you have to be joined to your love. And I, I hope I'm not over-reading the metaphor when I notice in verse 10, the groom puts on special clothes and the bride puts on special clothes. Was it not that Jesus Christ, our groom, clothed himself in frail humanity for us. And is it not the case that in our salvation, Jesus puts upon us the very robe of his righteousness for our covering? Everyone who is married to Jesus says, I couldn't spin my own garment. I couldn't cleanse myself. Robert Murray McShane, when I stand before the throne dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, then shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. John Wesley, Jesus, your blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Mid flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand on that great day. Who against me a word can say, fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. That's what this is describing. The bride adorns herself. The earth springs forth the fruit of righteousness before all the nations. This is what we're waiting for. This is what we are remembering and anticipating Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, is the, the way the book closes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Church, this may be the living God got you out of bed and brought you here to this meeting today so that you would simply be told this, church, this whole book ends with an unconquerable hero on a white horse who comes down here and slays a dragon and rescues his bride. And when he marries her, there is a feast beyond any feast that you could ever imagine. And then he brings her into a castle that is so strewn with jewels that even the carpets and the pavements are platinum and gold. This is the gospel of our salvation. Glory be to God. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, what can we say but that we long for that day? Lord Jesus, what can we say but come quickly? Lord Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We want you. We long for the day when the dwelling of God will be with us. Lord Jesus, hasten that day. And in this intervening time between those mountain peaks of your first advent and your second advent, in this our day, strengthen us, bind up our broken hearts, forgive our sins, rescue us from ourselves and our own worst proclivities. Be a light and a guardian and a guide to us. And Lord Jesus, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might be your beautiful, radiant people looking for you, loving you, loving one another as you've called us to. Jesus, this we ask that you might be glorified in the life of your church. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.